let's, let, let's pray. Lord, thank you for, uh, Lord, this morning, and uh, God, thank you for the eyewitnesses, the people that were there uh, 2,000 years ago that saw Jesus as he walked about, that, that experienced his teaching, that witnessed the miracles. Father, thank you for, uh, Lord, the recorded stories we have and the, the history that we have that we call the Bible. Lord, thank you for, uh, Father, the history that we know of the first 30 years of the church as, as Luke wrote it down for us. God, we thank you for that. And Lord, I just pray this morning as we, uh, Lord, have a look at what's written there. I, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you open up our eyes to see the things that you want us to see? And would you open up our ears so that we can hear what the Holy Spirit wants to say to each and every one of us today, Father? I believe you want to say stuff to us, God. You, you want to speak to us, God, and you, you speak to us in a language that we understand. So, Lord, I pray this morning, speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you've got a Bible there, one of those books, turn to Luke 22 for me, please. Well, go back a couple of thousand years, you wouldn't have had a book, you would have had a scroll. Somebody would have got up to speak this morning and somebody over there would have handed them a scroll and they would have stood in front of you and they would have unscrolled it. And then they would have picked something and, you know, you would have had to take their word for it because you've got nothing there to verify what they're saying is true. This was, this was um, part of the, a dark period in the history of the church where that actually did happen and the authorities and the powers that be had it. Nobody else was allowed to have access to it. So you could twist it and put your spin on anything you wanted and uh, make it say whatever you wanted. So I guess it's good that we've all got a copy for ourselves now. We can actually have a look at it and just make sure that, hey, is this guy right off centre or is what he's saying actually potentially correct? So in the last few months, <coughs> last few months I've had a couple of new things that have come into my possession. Um, I got a new house. You! How many, how many people have ever had a new house? Yep, yep, had a new house, a good feeling. I go home and I walk into my house, it's my place. Um, you know, the, it, it really rammed home recently that it was my house when Lismore decided to send out their rates bill. <laughs> Suddenly rammed home, oh, this actually is our house now, isn't it? Can't flick it off to a landlord or give it to a real estate and say, what can you do about this? It's ours. Um, also, along around the same time, I got a new car as well. Who's ever had a new car? Yeah, got a new car. We had a couple of new cars came into our possession as well through a series of very fortunate uh, events. And uh, so we got a new house with a new car, and I love new things. Everybody loves new things. But the reality is quite often the new things that we get are not actually new. They're just simply new to us. Yep. So the house I got, it was actually built in the year 2000. So it's new to me. I love it. It's new. But the house itself, is, is it's actually not new. It was new back in 2000 when they built it, but right now I got something that is new to me, but it's not actually new. It's sort of been there for a long time. And people drive past that house and they see that house and they've been seeing it for about the last 19 years on that same patch of ground. So it's not new to a lot of other people as well. It's just new to me because I took possession of that house. It's the same with my car. My car's out there. It looks 
really, really good because the owner before me kept it in very, very good condition. It's actually a 2013 model. It, it looks like it could be way more recent than that. Uh, when he got it, it might have been new, but when I got the car, it was new to me, but it's not actually technically new because the car was always in existence. It was always there, uh, just it was new to me when I took possession of it. But it was, it's been around since about 2013. So in one sense, yes, it's new, but on oh, the other sense, it's not really new, if that makes sense. It's, it's new, but it's not new. And many of us can relate to that. You've bought homes that were built by somebody else or cars or um, maybe you've gone op shopping and bought a shirt or, a, uh, or maybe you haven't, um, but some of you might have, or maybe you've gone and bought a piece of furniture or something, or maybe someone's gifted you something, they've given you something, and to you it was new. You, you saw a thing and it was new to you, but it obviously wasn't brand spanking new in the sense that it had never been there before. Uh, it was something that had been there before, but it's new because it just came into your <coughs> possession. When Jesus came to the earth, there were a lot of new things going on. Jesus was constantly uh, bringing new thoughts and new ideas and new this and new that. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, when Jesus was teaching, Mark tells us in, in Mark one twenty seven, the eyewitnesses to Jesus' teaching, they made this statement about his teaching. They said, it says, Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. The way that he taught was new. He taught with authority. This guy didn't just talk about power over sickness. He healed people. This guy didn't just talk about, about d- power in the demonic realm. He actually dealt with situations in the demonic realm. And the Bible shows us uh, time and time again, these eyewitnesses account for the fact that he cast these demon spirits out of people. So he taught with a different kind of authority, a new authority to the authority that they were used to hearing from the religious leaders of that particular day who talked a lot and said a lot, but there was something different about the authority with which Jesus did it. I guess you could say Jesus actually, uh, he, walked, he walked the talk. He didn't just talk the talk, he walked it. And people recognized that when he came and they said, what's this new teaching? He also taught something new, the stuff he said was new. The, the Ten Commandments were very much about the externals and this is what you do. And Israel's relationship with God up to that point was about what you did and did not do. There wasn't a great deal about heart. But Jesus comes and I guess you could say he flipped it over and he starts talking about the heart of man. He starts talking about the, the heart of issues and the heart of why. Not just what did you do, but Jesus starts going in deep and going, let's talk about why do you do? Why do we do these things? Um, a lot of people have referred to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, this great teaching where Jesus gets on top of a mountain and he teaches these people. And it's a, a very long discourse. And, and I've, I've heard people, um, commentators and theologians, compare the Sermon on the Mount with the Ten Commandments. So it's kind of like he took the Ten Commandments in that sermon and he kind of unpacked the Ten Commandments. See, Jesus was not against the stuff in the Old Testament. Jesus just reinterpreted the stuff that had been previously written that Israel had previously followed. When he reinterpreted it, some people followed and went with him, but a lot of Jewish people dug their heels in and said, no, 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 and they stuck with their own beliefs and their own ways. But there was something new about the way that Jesus uh, taught and there was new about something, the message that he taught. It didn't stop there because... The church is born, this movement that you and me are a part of. When Jesus is, is crucified and buried and resurrected, there's this movement started called the church. And they must have done something right, because in 2019, there are people sitting all around the world, every continent and, and place, every different tribe, language and tongue, and they'll be doing what we're doing this morning. They'll be gathering around these documents. They'll be worshipping God. They'll be doing a lot of the same things that we do. So they did something good. But Paul was a guy who was very anti that. 
His name was Saul, anti-God, anti-all that stuff. Had an encounter with God. Changed his mind. I guess, in one sense, his Old Testament understanding was reinterpreted to include Jesus as the centerpiece. Whereas a lot of other people dismissed him. You travel around the world now, you'll still find large Jewish communities that are still living the same way that they did in the Old Testament. Because they don't believe Messiah has come. They're still waiting for that day where something different will happen. We're here because we've encountered Jesus and we've realised that moment in history, that was the line in the sand where all things were made new. And so Paul ends up in Acts chapter 17, verse 19 to 21. Paul ends up in Athens and he's at this place called the Areopagus. And where it was, it was this place where it was like a big think tank. People sat down and they just debated and talked about new ideas, new philosophies, new ways of doing things, uh, uh, new, new religious viewpoints, new worldviews. They sat there and this is what they did all day, every day. People came from all around the place to sit in this place and talk about new ideas. And here's what the Bible tells us. Here's what Luke tells us in his record of the first 30 years of church. You find it in Acts 17, verse 19 to 21. He says this, And they took him, being Paul, and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new... Doctrine is of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or hear some new thing. This group of guys specialised in new things. If there was a new thing out there, they knew the new thing. That was their gig. We sit around and we know all the new things. But Paul comes in and whatever his message was, they're so taken in by it that they bring him in from out of the street and sit him down and go, you're bringing something new to us. In other words, we specialise in new ideas, but this idea is so radical and so different, it's new. It's like nothing we've ever come across before. It's like nothing we've ever heard before or experienced before. The good news of Jesus Christ, the story that we have to take to the world, the story that we have embraced and put our faith in that's changed our life, the thing that we've believed in that has given us access to God, dealt with our sin, is so incredibly new. It's so incredibly different to anything that has ever been. No other religion or philosophy has ever come close to the story and the good news of Jesus' death his burial and his resurrection. In other words, when Jesus came, it was God's way of drawing a line in the sand of human history and declaring with a loud voice, behold, I'm actually doing a new thing. A new thing. Israel knew this. Israel were prepared for a new thing because the prophets of old had been telling them for a long time, there's going to come a moment in history where I'm going to do something new. Um, you can find Jeremiah talks about it, several other prophets. I want to draw your attention this morning to Isaiah 43. Don't need to go there, but I want to read this to you. Isaiah 43, verse 15 to 19. And here's what it says. It says, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea. Now I want you to listen carefully. Who makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters. Who brings forth the chariot and horse the army and the power, they shall lie down together, they shall not rise, they are extinguished, they are quenched like a wick. And he says this, Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth, shall you not know it? I'll even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Let me read it to you out of the New Living Translation. 
Because the New Living Translation makes, dumbs it down a little bit for people maybe like me that read some of the Old Testament stuff and go, the language is a bit... The New Living Translation words it this way. Isaiah 43. I am the Lord your God, your Holy One, Israel's creator and king. I am the Lord who opened a way through the waters, making a dry path through the sea. Everybody familiar with the story of the children of Israel coming out of Egyptian bondage, right? This is the reference point. This is the picture that Isaiah is drawing in their mind. He wants them to think about Israel's exodus out of Egypt. I'm the Lord who opened a way through the waters, making a dry path through the sea. I called forth the mighty army of Egypt with all its chariots and horses. I drew them beneath the waves and they drowned. Their lives snuffed out like a smoldering candle wick. So we all remember the story. God goes in, Moses goes in, let my people go. You can find it, read about it in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. Let my people go. At this stage of Israel's history, they are in bondage to Egypt. They're slaves. They're building pyramids. They're building roads. They're doing all the slave work. And they're groaning under that. And somewhere in their hearts, they turned back to God. And they started crying out to God. Moses, one day, he's walking a bunch of sheep and cattle, whatever it was, and he sees a bush on fire. He turns and he walks over to the bush. He says to himself, wonder why that bush is on fire. Fair question. So he turns and he walks over to the bush. And what happens? God says this to him. He says, I've heard the cries of my children Israel. And I want to do something. In other words, they've turned back to me. And I'm going to turn back to them. Okay? They've turned back to me, and I'm going to turn back to them. This was the agreement that God had, and he ratifies this with them after they come out of Egypt. I'll get there in a second. But, but, but note that. They've cried out to me. They've turned their hearts back to me, and I'm going to do something for them. He wants to draw a picture. So he wants the reader of this to think about that story. That story. And then on the back of that story... The very next thing he says, once he's got them thinking about Israel's uh, coming out of Egypt, here's what he says. As soon as he's got that picture painted, he says, but forget all that. It's nothing compared to what I'm going to do. For I'm about to do something new. See, I've already begun. Do you not see it? Then he says this, I'll make a pathway through the wilderness. I'll create rivers in the dry wasteland. A pathway through the wilderness and rivers in dry wasteland. It's like he's saying, I'm going to do something so profound and it's going to be so big that you're not going to miss it. I'm going to make sure I do something that's really, really evident. I'm going to change something. Now, I want us to fast forward. Let's, let's get in a time capsule and let's fast forward a number of years. And here we are. We find ourselves 1,500 years later in a tiny upper room. 1,500 years have passed. I'm in an upper room. Jesus is sitting there. All of his mates are around him, those that followed him. You would know this is what we term the Last Supper. The Last Supper. And so Jesus is sitting there in the last, about to have this final meal with his disciples. But what they were celebrating that night, we call it communion. When Jesus sat down, it wasn't communion. It was a festival of the Jewish people called the Passover. The Passover was was a memory, a commemoration of what God did delivering Israel out of Egypt. So when that happened, they started basically this national holiday. And it went on. It wasn't like us. It wasn't just a thimble and a cracker. This thing went on for about a week. There were four cups involved that represented different things. There's a whole bunch of ceremony around that we kind of uh, sort of dumb it down and, and bare bones it here at church. And we take a little, little drink and a little thing to, to represent what happened. But when they took communion, it was a much more elaborate uh, uh, scene than that. And it had meaning to it. 
Every time they sat down to have Passover, they, their minds would straight away go back to remember when God delivered us out of Egyptian bondage, 1,500 years. These people knew this story. You know why? Because they had this oral tradition and they would pass it down from generation to generation to generation. Every year at the Passover, all the young kids would be sat down and the older generation would, would repeat the story and tell them and tell them. And as those younger kids got older, one day they became the person passing the story on. And then as those kids got they would pass it on. This went on for 1,000, nearly, nearly 1,500 years approximately of generation after generation. So they knew exactly what this was about. And so Jesus sits down and he's about to take Passover with his disciples. You can read this In Matthew 26, Mark 24, Luke 22. But I'm going to read it out of Luke 22. Verse 19 to 20. And here's what happens. It says, And he being Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. And then he began to speak. Now, anyone ever been to a wedding? And when you get to the wedding, you all rock up, you sit down, and the guy up the front says something like this. He goes, We're gathered here today to celebrate the joining together of... And you can hear him speaking, but in your mind, you're like, your lips are moving, but all I'm hearing is blah, 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 blah. I got dressed up, I put my makeup on, I had a shower, I took a day off work. Do you think I don't know why I'm here? I know why I'm here. You don't have to tell me that I'm here to witness this marriage. I got the invite six months ago. I know exactly why I'm here. Why are you wasting your time in that? Just get on with the ceremony. These guys are sitting there thinking the same thing. We know what this is about. We've already got a picture. We know what's coming. We are going to sit here and we are going to commemorate and remember what God did for our people 1,500 years ago when we were in bondage to Egypt and we turned our hearts back to him and he came in and he saved us. And we're going to celebrate that right now. And then Jesus does something that was probably, we don't get it because we're not Jewish, but it's probably the most controversial statement of his entire recorded ministry. And if there were Pharisees and teachers of the law in the upper room at the time, I reckon the story may have had the potential to have worked out different. There's a reason why he went to an upper room with just his closest followers, to make this statement. Because if he made this statement somewhere else, he could have been toast. Here's what he says. He says, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Imagine if I got up in a couple of weeks' time and I said, look, we're planning our Christmas service, December 25, Christmas service is coming up. Uh, We're going to be doing a service here. But we've decided we're going to do something different. We got together as a leadership team. We've made a decision. What we're going to do this year and every year from now on as well, December 25, instead of worshipping and remembering the birthday of Jesus, we're going to remember my birthday. Is that Okay. So every year from now on, so, so mark it in your calendar every year, December 25, I want you to rock up. We're going to have an early morning service, and what we're going to do is we're going to celebrate me. We're going to make it all about me. Now, first thing you would be doing is you'd be grabbing the other leaders, going, what's going on here? Has he lost his marbles? You might even ring up the INC head office and go, do you realise what this guy's doing? And at the very bare minimum, you wouldn't even come back. You wouldn't walk in. You would think this guy's lost the plot. How dare I hijack the, probably one of the biggest uh, religious festival times of the year in the Western Church, Christmas, and say, I'm going to make it all about me. Well, that's exactly what Jesus did here upstairs in that room with his disciples. This is the biggest um, festival, probably the most important of all the Jewish festivals. 
And it was there to commemorate Moses and what God had done through Moses all those years ago. And Jesus says, from now on, this day, it's going to be all about me. We're going to make it all about me. If there were Pharisees in that room, I reckon they would have tore his head off. See, we don't get it. We're not meant to get it. We're, we're here in the West and we've got our traditions and our culture. But to a Jew, for you to hijack the most important ceremony of our nation's history and say it's going to be all about you, that's new. That's something totally new. And then he goes on and he says this, and this is where he really lets the cat out of the bag. This is where he lets the cat out of the bag. He says, this is the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. I want to tell you something about that word new. We've heard it a few times. When Jesus came, they said he gave new teaching. Paul goes to Areopagus and and they say, what's this new teaching, new idea you've got? Jesus stands up and he says, you know what? This blood of mine, this is going to begin a new covenant, a new covenant. And I'll talk about covenant in a second because, again, it's something we don't understand in the West. But to a Jewish person, to a Middle Eastern person, covenants were very, very important. We try to say covenants are like a will, and they kind of are. But imagine a will back before lawyers were allowed to change it all after somebody died. I mean, once, once it was ratified, that was it. Yeah, we live in a Western society now where it really doesn't mean much anymore because you'll find a loophole or somebody can get around it. Well, back then you didn't. You didn't. Once there was an agreement, a will, a testament, a covenant, that was it. If you didn't keep up the end of your end of that bargain, it could literally mean your life. That word new, kainos in the Greek, here's what it means. It means recently made. In other words, Jesus said, this is my blood of the recently made covenant. It's a new covenant. It's different. Forget all the other agreements. Forget all the other testaments. What I'm doing right here is I'm ratifying and beginning something brand spanking new. Something recently made, fresh. Something that is unused, unworn, of a new kind, unprecedented, uncommon, un heard of. When Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant, what he's basically saying is forget the former things. Forget everything you've ever known about your relationship to God. Forget the way that God used to deal with you. Forget the way that you used... Forget all that stuff. I'm setting up something so incredibly new. It's unheard of, uncommon, untried, unworn, never been used before. We just say words, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant. Jesus came and he drew such a line in the sand that this is going to be different. Don't think about God anymore the same way that you used to. Don't think about your own relationship with God from here forward the same way you viewed your relationship with God back here in the past because God's dealing with man was changing through the sacrifice of Jesus. It changed makes me think sometimes how many of us in a New Testament church, we live in this new agreement, new covenant. We read things like this, a new covenant, but do we ever stop and think, what does that actually mean? What does he mean, a new covenant, a new agreement between God and man? What does that actually mean? Because we know so much of the old, and the truth of the matter is most of us throughout most of our church life have heard more and experienced more of the way God's old relationship was with mankind than what it is through and after the new covenant relationship. We think of old and new, we think of law and grace, we simplify it. But I wonder how much of our thinking is still caught back here 
under the old agreement between God and man, and we haven't allowed ourselves to move on into the new, the unheard of, the unknown, the unworn, the uncommon, this new thing that Jesus talked about. He said, I'm pouring out my blood to ratify a new covenant. When covenants were made in, 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 in ancient Eastern times, Old Testament times, what they would do is, 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 is think, of, think of it like a will today. I could sit there, me and Jackie were talking recently about you know, getting a will together and stuff like that. One of the reasons I, 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 I hate wills these days is because I'm so tired of hearing that a will was settled, somebody was passing from this life to the next, and they made their decision, but as soon as they're gone, everybody wants to fight over it, and lawyers come in, and they rip it apart, and they don't get what they wanted anyway. And, and if you're a part of that, sorry, I don't like it. When I pass, I don't care what I say. If I say I want all of my stuff to be placed in this shoe and then burnt on an altar, then you place all my gear in the shoe and you burn it on the altar. And I don't want anyone fighting over what happens with it because that's my will, that's my testament, that's my decision. Okay? But just as in the modern day, if I write out a will, that will is not enacted until I die. There's a death before the will is enacted. It's exactly the same in the Old Testament when they made covenants and, and agreements and things like that. Was that, that they called them blood covenants because they would make an agreement and once to, for that agreement to be ratified, there had to be blood spilled. So what they would do is they would get an animal, a goat, a chick, or whatever it was, a, a bull, and they would cut it in half. And they would cut this thing in half and, and, and dismember it and they would place the pieces of it either side, say up there and there, and the people involved in the agreement, anyone that had any responsibility towards that agreement, would have to walk through the middle of this mem- dismembered animal and the blood everywhere and it was their way of saying if I don't keep my end of the bargain then let it be to me just like it is to those animals covenants were serious back then people took them serious now there were three types of, 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 of covenants there were, there were little ones but the three main types of covenants were this one was what they called a bilateral treaty a bilateral treaty was a, a, an agreement or a covenant between two people or two groups of the same standing basically so call it like a business transaction today hey you and me if we put our heads together and we agree you provide this i provide this we both win uh so we've both got a responsibility here and so we come into this agreement because it's it's bilateral no one's better than anybody else we're on the same level and we're all getting something out of this and so we enter into an agreement like that the second type which is more important to us when it comes to understanding what we're talking about. Second one was what they called a bilateral suzerainty treaty. A suzerain was basically the king or somebody in authority or power. And the way this one worked was it was a covenant between a person of greater authority and a person of lesser authority. So a king and his subjects. Think of it, think of it a little bit like uh, giving your children the car keys when they get their license. Okay, yeah, I'm sure you did this. You would have done this, Mick. Okay, Felicia, here's the car keys. You can have the car, you can drive it, you can take it wherever you want and so on, but you make sure if I catch you doing anything wrong, if I catch you speeding, if you did that thing, if, you, if I see you hanging out with your friends while parties yahooing down the street, if you any of this stuff, he's saying I should be talking to Joel about this. If you carry on like that, you do any of this sort of stuff, then Joel, I will come down on you. I will come down on you with all the thunder of heaven and you'll never get that car again. Think about that, the person with the greater authority entering into an agreement with somebody who's a little bit lesser. This is exactly the type of covenant, agreement, that Israel had up to this point with Yahweh. This is the same covenant agreement that Israel had with God up to this point when Jesus comes. Now you go back, what happens? They get out of Egypt. As soon as they get out of Egypt, it's not long there, Moses goes up on a mountain. What does he do? He comes down with what? Ten Commandments, a bunch of laws. Uh, if you go into Deuteronomy 28, 29, 30, 
And we talked about this a few weeks ago. Uh, they outline all the laws and the rules, and this is the one it means to follow God. And then he says this, if you do this, you'll be blessed. Who's going to bless you? God. God says, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll do this, I'll do that. If you disobey and don't continue in these laws, you're going to be cursed. Ah, here's the thing. Who's going to curse you? God. Go and read it. It's the same thing. I'm the higher power. You're the lesser power. If you do the right thing, I'll do the right thing. But you turn your back on me. You do not uphold all these things in the law. You do not do that. He says then, he says, if you do do that, I'll keep all the things that happened to Egypt away from you. If you do not, then I will bring all this stuff. You don't believe me? Pick up your Bible. Read it. God says, I will make this happen. I will make that happen. In other words, I will bring punishment upon you for all the wrong things that you do. But if you do the right thing, man, I'm going to look after you and I'll be your God. But you better do the right thing. This was the relationship that Israel had with God. We call it the Old Covenant. Which makes sense because you look at Israel's history, what's it like? We're doing good, we're doing bad, we're doing good, we're doing bad, we're doing good, we're doing bad. One day we're ruling the world, next day the Babylonians have got us. Then we're ruling the world, then this race have got us. And, then we're and by the time Jesus comes, it must have been very ironic for these people to sit around this table and celebrate this thing called Passover when they were currently being oppressed by the Roman nation. Here we are celebrating God's great victory in the past as we're back in bondage again to another nation. What have we done wrong? It's okay because one day God's going to send a deliverer. He's going to set us free. There's a third type of covenant. It was what was called a promissory covenant. And here's what a promissory covenant was. It was one party making a promise to the benefit of another. And it was unconditional. It was unconditional. You didn't have to uphold anything. You didn't have to do anything. I'm just making a promise to you. This is what I will do. I don't care how you treat me. I don't care what you do to me. I'm making a promise to you. It's unconditional at my end. All the responsibilities on me, I'm going to do everything that needs to be done. And you are just going to reap the benefits. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says, I've come to bring a new covenant. See, every time Israel sat down to Passover, here's what they remembered. They not only remembered the physical action of them coming out of Egypt. They not only remembered the, the fact that we were in bondage and we physically came out of the nation of, of, of Egypt. But it was also a reminder to them of the type of relationship that they had with God. As soon as they came out, what was the first thing they did? They got these Ten Commandments given to them and the covenant, the Bible says, it was ratified. It was, we're reminded again, this is what... Don't blow it. If we don't follow God again, the Passover reminded them because of the agreement we have with God, if we don't do the right thing, we could end up right back in there again. But if we do the right thing, hey, God, God will bring us out. So it was not just a reminder of the physical freedom they got through uh, Moses and through God delivering them, but it was also a reminder that this is how our relationship works. If we do everything right, God will look after us. If we don't, we're in trouble. It's not a great relationship, really. Now, God had his reasons, and I don't have time to go into why he did that. Why did God choose one nation over every other nation? Why, did, why is the whole story about one race of people? God had a reason. There's a very clear reason, as a matter of fact. In a nutshell, it was this. He wanted one nation of people, one group of people, that he could do his dealings with so that all the other nations of the earth could look at as an example and go, okay, when they follow God, this happens. When you don't follow the one true God, look how life pans out for you. But when you are following God, you're so blessed, man. We, we, we want to come across and dump all our idols and dump all our pantheon of gods, and we want to go after this God. That was the idea. Israel kept on blowing it. 
And Jesus comes along and he says, you know what? I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. The reason I'm here is because I'm going to bring a new agreement to earth between humanity and God. No longer is it going to be like it used to be. You blow it, you're in trouble. You get it right, you'll get a blessing. He says, I'm going to change that. Because if there's anything the history of Israel teaches us, it's this. You'll never please God. You'll never be good enough to be accepted by God. You'll never be good enough to be blessed by God. Never, ever. And so Jesus comes along. And here's what he says. This is my summary. He says, I'm making a promise to you for your benefit to make you right in the sight of God. The old agreement where you had to keep all my laws in order to be acceptable to God, and every time you fell short, you had to make it up by animal sacrifices, it's now totally and utterly obsolete. Follow me, for I've done everything necessary to make you acceptable. You just have to believe and receive it. You just have to believe and receive it. Jesus wanted to reframe the image of God by making himself a picture of the Passover. Celebrating the Passover as they always did it just reinforced the old agreement. We disobeyed, we ended up in Egypt. God wanted to change that. Now, Galatians chapter 3. I'll finish up with this. Verse 10 to 14. I'm chucking a lot of passages at you today. I'm kind of building a little bit of a platform here for some thinking. Because I think the church suffers from a disease called stinking thinking. We just gobble things up. And because it sold a million books, it must be correct. And because you've got 400,000 people following you, you must be telling the truth. And because your conference sells out worldwide, you must... Well, maybe they are, maybe they're not, I don't know. But I do think that we're sitting here in the midst of a world that's going to hell in the freight train. Yet we're apparently got the most powerful message that humanity's ever heard. I'm looking at empty seats in this building and I guarantee they're in every other building in town as well this morning. I'm looking at people that feel like they don't have any needs. Looking at a society that thinks the church is irrelevant. And I'm scratching my head going, Jesus, when you came, you brought something new. Something that was life-transforming, community-shattering, world-altering. It was so pivotal that even my calendar reflects back to that moment in time. You know? And I think we got here by making one degree of error, by 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 one degree of error. I don't think we got here because of one big bad choice we made or one big wrong teaching. I think the church is standing in a place right now. And when I look, I feel like, you know what, we've just accepted one degree by one degree. We've got comfortable with this and then comfortable with that and then a little bit comfortable with that. And before you know it, here we are, largely irrelevant, feeling powerless, not making much of an impact in the world in, in, in reality. And I don't know about you, I would rather do anything else than be a part of a faith community or attached to an organisation or a movement that's just dead. So I'm going to prod some things over the next few weeks. I want to poke you, see if I get a reaction. And you may react and get up and run away and say, I don't want to be there anymore. I hope you don't, but again, that might be what you do. But hopefully... You go away and you prod God a bit and go, God, I want to understand this. Maybe you go and you pick this up and you have a look for yourself. Maybe you ask some questions. Maybe you examine your own heart. Is that okay? Galatians 3 says this. 
For as many as are the works of the law, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. Galatians three ten to fourteen. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. In other words, he's referring back to the way it used to be. If you didn't continue in everything, you're cursed. Where'd the curse come from? It was God. You could rightly blame God. Back then, you could easily look at someone and go, your life stinks and things are going down the gurgler. You're obviously not obeying God. Does that sound familiar? Should it? 1,900 years later, should that sound familiar to us? But it does, doesn't it? Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by what? Faith. It's not about works. It's about faith. Faith in a moment in history. Faith in a person that did something nobody else could do, including you and I. And that was make humanity or even, I can't even make myself right with God. So I'm just not good enough. But that no one is justified by law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith. But, and then he's quoting Old Testament, the man who does them shall live by them. What he's saying is, quoting Old Testament, the man who, who, who does all the right things will live by it. But if you don't do all the right things, you don't live. Right? Now watch this. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. I, I read that phrase, and I wonder how many of us have read that phrase, redeemed us from the curse of the law. What was the curse of the law? We're redeemed from it. What was it? Go back to Deuteronomy 28, 29, 30. If you don't obey me, I will do this to you. I will punish you. I will come down hard upon you. I will let you know that you are doing the wrong thing. I will get involved and I will bring some negative things into your world and they'll be instigated by God. The curse of the law was this balance between do the right thing, get the blessing, but do the wrong thing, you get the curse. Where'd the curse come? It came from God. The curse of the law that he's talking about we've been redeemed from is this. Guess what? God's not bringing anything bad into your world anymore. Our relationship with God is not like under the old agreement where if I did the wrong thing, then God would rightfully come down hard upon me uh, and, and, and deal with me every time I did something wrong. He's saying we're redeemed from the curse of the law. The curse of the law is not a part of our nature. It's not a part of our agreement with God anymore. How many of you, when, when some crazy religious maniacs flew planes into two big buildings in America, how many of you joined the party of believers all around the world who said it's God's what? Judgment on America. Well, hang on. Jesus came and said, I don't work like that anymore. God doesn't work like that anymore. That's the old agreement. How many of you, when something bad happens in your life, the first thing you do is you go straight to a place, well, what have I done wrong? Have I, do I need to repent of something? How many of you, when you see other people going through a difficulty in life, that's your go-to is, oh, they must, Del, when Del fell over, you must have done something really bad. I mean, I'm talking horrendously bad. And God just went, Del had enough. And you went, Bleh. and then God just sat back and said, you will pay for that. That's old agreement thinking. Jesus said, I've come to ratify a 
totally new agreement. Stop thinking in terms of punishments and judgments. In fact, when Jesus came, we all know this, Luke chapter 4, the first thing he does when he stands up and the first time he begins his public ministry to the world where he comes on out and he says, right, I'm going to start this course of action that's going to lead me to a crucifixion on a cross. It's got to start at some point. It starts with him walking into a synagogue and they hand him a scroll of a prophet Isaiah. You'll find it in Luke chapter 4. He unrolls the scroll and here's what he says. He reads, he says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Glad tidings, recovery of sight to the blind, deliverance for the captives, and to declare what the acceptable year of the Lord. What's interesting, go to Isaiah 61, the very passage, this is the very passage that Jesus read from. You know what the very next verse says? And the day of vengeance of our God. Why did Jesus stop? At the acceptable year of the Lord. Why didn't he continue on? The day of vengeance is coming. God's got a time set for judgment. God's got a time. But you know what? Here's the new agreement. When I gave my life to Christ, I entered an agreement. And the agreement was not this. I'm now perfect. So now I can come into the presence of God and stand because I'm perfect. Because I'm really good. I dot my eyes, I cross my T's, I do everything I'm meant to do, so now I can confidently come and stand before God because I'm so together. That's not it, is it? <laughs> What's the new agreement? new agreement is Jesus dies on a cross and deals with sin. He makes me new. He makes me clean. He gives me right standing before God. Hebrews 10, 14 says this, For by one offering, speaking of Christ, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Some versions say he's made perfect those who are still being worked on. I'm still being worked on, but I've been made perfect by the cross. I don't stand before Jesus because I'm still a work in progress, but you know when God looks at me, he sees the perfection of Jesus. I'm right in the sight of God. Now, if I'm right in the sight of God, then how can, if God looks at me and he sees me as right, then he doesn't see me as a screw-up, a stuff-up. He doesn't see me in all my mistakes. He doesn't look at me like he did in the old and go, well, you blew it there, you blew it there, so I'm going to curse you, you blew it there. There's going to be... He doesn't do that. He's not looking at that. As far as God's concerned, I'm perfect. As far as my relationship with God is concerned, I'm standing here and I'm perfect before God. Even though I'm a work in progress, I'm perfect before God. Ephesians 1.6 says, To the praise of the glory of God's grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. God made me accepted to God. I didn't make myself acceptable to God. He made me accepted through what he did. See, in the old, under the old agreement, you made yourself acceptable. You made yourself acceptable by dotting your I's, crossing your T's, and getting it all right. In the new agreement, I can't make myself acceptable. God makes me acceptable. That's what God did for me. He made me acceptable. And I'll leave you with this thought. Romans 5. Verse 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into the grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of glory. Watch it. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Did you notice that being justified by faith came before having peace with God? Justified by faith comes first. So you've got to believe that. And if you can't believe that, guess what? You will never actually find peace with God. If you can't receive the fact and believe it, 
that you are right now perfect. God's looking at you going, you're perfect. You're a work in progress, but you're perfect. As far as standing in my kingdom, as far as relationship with me, you're perfect. And if you think you're not, then are you waiting for Jesus to be sacrificed again? Does he have to go through it again for you? This is the writer of Hebrews says. He argues this. You're right before God. If, if, if we don't accept that, and we don't believe that we are right before God right now as we are, we will never, ever, ever have peace with God. It's important for us. Stop, stop thinking that the bad things happening in your life are God. They're not. Stop saying that sickness. I was talking to someone recently who got sick and they're trying to say, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, did, did God... No, God didn't do it. Why are you even thinking like that? You, don't, you know why are you thinking like that? Because you don't understand covenants. You don't understand the new agreement that we have with God. The new agreement is this. I stuff up, I screw up. Guess what? God is not punishing me for that. He'll discipline me as a child, but discipline and punishment are two totally different things. Totally different things. Punishment is to do with what you've done in the past and paying for it. Discipline is about changing and altering behaviours for the future. They're two totally different things. Punishment is a full stop. Discipline is a comma. There's more to go. Punishment is, that's it, you've done it, bang, over, deal with it. Here's the consequence. Here's the, it, it's not, it's totally different. And God is not dishing out punishment upon us for getting things wrong. We need to understand that for our own sake. But you know what, we need to understand that too because that, people, is the message we have to take to the world. It's not homosexual, sort yourself out and then you'll be acceptable to God. Drug addict, sort yourself out and then you'll be acceptable to God. Now my message is this, you're not perfect, but God's got an offer for you. If you'll accept the sacrifice of Christ for your wrongdoings and for your sin, God will accept you right now as you are. Church might not, people might not, but God will. God will accept you. And once he's perfected you, guess what? He'll sanctify you. He's perfected you, he'll work on you. And he'll get involved in the hard stuff of your life. Why are you where you are? How did you end up here? He'll deal with that. But right now you can dive in, boots and all, regardless, and stand before God. And God will accept you. Why? Because it's not on the basis of works. It's on the basis of grace by faith. And a lot of us struggle with that because we've got our pet sins and we've got our stuff up here. And we go, no, no, except for that. We are, amen it. But in the back of our mind, we're going, yeah, but except for that, except for that, except for that. Those ones are too. We can't grade sin. We're either saved by grace or we're not. If you break one law, you already break them all. That's what James says. Amen? I'm poking you. I'm poking you. I'm poking you. Do you want to live under that same old agreement? Where you're up, down, up, down, up, down, trying to please God, trying to be impressed, trying to be blessed? Every time something bad happens, are you going to blame God? Every time something bad happens, are you going to search your heart for sin and go, it must be me? Or do you want to just get peace with God and go, you know what? Enough of that. Jesus offered us something new. And that new thing is this, that he did everything that needed to be done. God's not going to punish you. He's not judging you anymore. You've been transported from darkness to light. You've gone through judgment now. And guess what? You've been judged acceptable, regardless of what you think. Father, I just want to thank you, Lord, for your word. And thank you for this morning, God. Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts. Seal in our hearts, Lord. God, we, we don't know all the answers, but what we do know, God, is that we're meant to be the answer. Father, we're meant to carry the answer to a, a world that is separated from you. 
And God, I'll be the first to say, I don't know how to do it, 2019. And I need your help. So start with me, start with the way I think, start with the things I believe. Start with the way I interact. So God, I've got something of powerful truth to take to the rest of the world. And I thank you this morning, God, that I, you know what, whether this message was good or bad, whether there's a 10-point scorecard being held up or a 1, it doesn't matter, because I'm acceptable to you. Father, whether people agree with, with what we think or, Lord, whether our shortcomings and failures stick out like sore thumbs, you still look at us and you still say you're perfect. And I'm working on you. Thank you for grace this morning, Father, in Jesus' name. And Lord, I just pray a blessing upon uh, this food that we're going to share together. Just bless our time together, God, our conversation, Father. Lord, I pray you'd be, be, be speaking to us. Give us ideas, thoughts, God thoughts, about how we can impact our communities, how we can reach our neighbours, our friends, and those that are around us. And Lord, in the next seven days, give every one of us an opportunity to tell somebody about the goodness of God. Father, somebody that at this point in their life, they don't know it yet. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. We're going to have some food. It's good.